1: Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Isabel Moore, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, my conversation is with Tamar Carroll, an assistant professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology and program director of Digital Humanities and Social Sciences. Her book, Mobilizing New York, AIDS, Anti-Poverty, and Feminist Activism, published by University of North Carolina Press in 2015, is the topic of today's show. In the book, Carol examines the history and legacy of three path-breaking social movements in New York City from the 1950s through the 1990s. She demonstrates the way the movements used community organizing, concepts of identity, and coalitions with other groups to further their causes. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Isabel Moore, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tamar Carroll about her 2015 book, Mobilizing New York, AIDS, Anti-Poverty, and Feminist Activism, published by University of North Carolina Press. Tamar Carroll, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: We're so glad you're here. Um, So I wonder, Tamar, if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, your personal and academic background, and how you became interested in the study of history.
0: Sure. Um, I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts, and I always loved history um, in school. I went to UMass Amherst as an undergraduate, and I double majored in journalism and history. Um, And I, I did some internships at newspapers and was frustrated by what I felt was an inability to go to really tell the full story or go as deeply as I wanted to, um, in reporting on issues. I also reported for the, the UMass daily Collegian. Um, I, I was an investigative reporter for the, it's a daily newspaper at UMass. So I got a taste of journalism and decided that I would go to grad school for history because I wanted to be able to write, um, longer pieces and, and also just to, to study things so I had a, a better understanding. Um, but while I was at UMass Amherst, I also, I took classes with Kathy Pice, um, who is now at the University of Pennsylvania, who's a really amazing historian of gender and sexuality And she inspired my interest in women's history, which actually was pretty late in my career at UMass, um, but in time for me to pursue that in graduate school at the University of Michigan. Um, And at Michigan, I I studied with uh, Regina Moritz Sanchez, again, a a fantastic um, scholar of women's history, gender, medical history, um, and Jewish history as well. And uh, just someone who uh, her her knowledge is just so expansive. And she's a wonderful editor who really pushed me to improve my writing and to write in an accessible way. Um, So I studied with Gina and my my co-chair for my dissertation was Matthew Lassiter, who's a historian of politics um, in in the United States in the post-45 period and uh, so I was combining fields, combining you know the study of women, gender, and sexuality with the study of politics and social movements and the state. And so being able to draw on both of their expertise was really important in shaping the dissertation, which became my book.
1: So thanks so much for telling us a little bit about your background. And um, how did you come to write this particular book, Mobilizing New York?
0: I was... Um, in a in a required seminar on liberalism and political history with Terry McDonald, who he, he's another wonderful historian who influenced me a lot. So I was learning about liberal political theory and I had to write a research paper and I was interested in feminist activism and and part of what we had read in in Terry's class was um Todd Gitlin's Twilight of Common Dreams and it sort of, um, you know, there's an associated body of literature that um, sort of sees the, sees the feminist activism, gay rights activism and black power activism in particular um, as um, f- fragmenting the left. Right and kind of um, paving the way for the rise of conservatism in the 1980s, um, and I thought that that was wrong, and I wanted to find some examples, some counterexamples, um, because I I really thought that the problem was when when differences weren't acknowledged, right, um, and and so that was what led to fragmentation. Um, and so I went to Smith and all of that was kind of in my, in my mind, but what I thought I was going to do, I got a small grant from Smith that allowed me to stay there. I think it was for like a month in the summer and I was going to look at Gloria Steinem's papers, um, And an archivist there was like, hey, you know, if you're interested in feminism, we just got this new collection on working class feminists from Brooklyn. And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, because first of all, I hadn't really read anything about working class feminists. Um, And and so I was really intrigued. And I read uh, I started going through their material and, and I read um, you know, their original goals and objectives, which were very much about bringing people together across differences of race and class um, to, to work um, together uh, for women's issues, but also for community issues. So I was really intrigued. They didn't fit with the historiography that I had learned, you know, that I was learning about. And um, I, I, I spent, like I said, about a month in the archives that summer. And then I also went to Brooklyn and with my um, grad school, my dear roommate and uh, friend from grad school, Lara Roosh, who's a uh, political scientist. She teaches at um, the University of Michigan Dearborn now. But anyway, um, Lara and I interviewed the founder of the National Congress of Neighborhood Women, Jan Peterson. Um, in Brooklyn. And Jan told me more about the organization and also put me in touch with other women. Um, So I did additional oral history interviews. Um, And that, you know, that became a seminar paper. Um, And then uh, eventually, I was working on my prospectus for the dissertation. And I wanted I had gotten positive feedback on the on the seminar paper about the National Congress for Neighborhood Women. So I knew I wanted to, you know, to keep that in the dissertation, to expand it and make it better. Uh, But I also decided I wanted to look for other case studies, other examples of groups that had formed coalitions for progressive social change, um, that had members with different identities. And so I, again, I, I went back to the archives. Um, and in, in this case, I went to, um, I went back to Smith and I, and I also went to Tamament. and at Smith, the interesting thing is, um, they collect women's history archives, but they had Richard Cloward's archives, um, the radical um, criminologist and sociologist whose partner is Francis Fox Piven. And um, Francis Fox Piven donated Richard's papers to Smith. And um, she allowed me to look at them, even though they they weren't totally open to open to the public yet, um, because he had just recently died. And um, at that time, anyway, um, so Richard Cloward founded, um, helped co-found Mobilization for Youth. And Jan had told me, Jan Peterson had told me about Mobilization for Youth, because that was where she worked as a social worker when she first came to New York. And that's where she learned about organizing and where she learned... Um, a lot about social change, actually. And so um, and, and she had told me how important mobilization for youth's emphasis on maximum feasible participation was the idea that poor people should be involved um, in decision making about um, pro- social programs that were directed at them. That became part of the larger War on Poverty um and that's one of the the lasting influences of mobilization for youth so so at smith i i studied more um about mobilization for youth and then i also their records are are also at the Columbia um social wealth, welfare um at columbia in the in the school for social welfare Um, And there's oral histories related to them at Columbia. I also, so I went back to New York and I did more interviews there, although some of the people involved in mobilization for youth had died, but some of them were still alive. And so I talked to them and I, then I was at Tamament, which is at the library at NYU, um, which is a radical history archive. Um, labor union um and I was looking i went there to look at Carasa uh specifically, which was a reproductive rights group that brought together abortion rights activists and um anti sterilization activists so Carasa was really important really important in broadening um the movement from abortion rights to reproductive rights and and looking at women's right to, um, to be mothers as well as the right to, to choose not to become a mother. So, uh, I was there studying Carrasa. Um, and then again, an an archivist said, Hey, you know, we have this new collection. It's, it hasn't been cataloged yet. Would you like to see it? And I had been there for like six weeks and I was scheduled to go back to Michigan I only had like a couple days left and, and they're like, we could bring it out from storage. So I said, yeah, yeah, I want to see it. And um, it, the first thing I saw was um, pictures of the church ladies for choice, which were these um, gay men that would dress up in drag and sing songs about reproductive rights. And um, I was hooked. I was like, why are they doing this? (laughs) I want to learn more. And so I, um, The thing is, in order to to see more, I had to contact um, Elizabeth Mikesell, who was the activist, the founder of the Church Ladies for Choice, who had donated the archives. um, And she made me keep meeting her at demonstrations. (laughs) So I would be, you know, at 8 a.m. standing on the sidewalk at a at a demonstration. Um, And after we did that a few times, Elizabeth, I, I won Elizabeth's trust, and she let me interview her and she put me in touch with other members of the Church Ladies and of Women's Health Action Mobilization um, and the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. So WHAM and ACT UP. Um, and th- that's that became the, the final case study of the book. Um, and I never did um, work Carasa in. They're a very important organization and maybe I'll get to write about them in the future. But there are other historians that have written about Carasa and, and nobody, um, to my knowledge, no other historians had written about Wham and Act Up and the church ladies. So that was why I decided um, to, to make them my final case study.
1: Interesting. So it sounds like the archives really kind of led you on this, on this journey of discovering different groups that were active and using kind of innovative approaches. Yeah, very much so. Interesting. So, um, so you've kind of given us a really helpful overview of the groups that you, um, wound up using as your case studies and you focus on Basically, the 1950s to 1990s in New York City um, on the several activists and community organizations that you just filled us in on. Why don't we start by talking about um, mobilization for youth a little bit more in depth? Um, that, uh brings us to your first two chapters on the mobilization for youth in the Lower East Side. Could you start by telling us a little bit more about the origins of the organization, its approach and what you found when you looked into that group?
0: Sure. Um, So the origins were actually under the, it began under the Kennedy administration as an anti-juvenile crime, program basically, and so um, the the president's um, committee on on juvenile delinquency um, gave um, Cloward and his partners um, a substantial grant to start this organization, and the idea they they based it on it was the idea of blocked opportunity um, that Uh, young Latino and African American men, in particular, um, living on the Lower East Side of New York City, which was a a poor and working class neighborhood that was undergoing um, residential change. So a lot of the, uh, it was historically a Jewish neighborhood, and a lot of um, white uh, residents were moving to the suburbs and more People from Puerto Rico and, and, um, more African Americans from the South and from other parts of New York City were moving in. Um, and there were still Jewish residents and Irish residents. So it was a diverse neighborhood, but that was changing quickly. Um, and there was a lot of, um, heroin use and gang, um, gang fights. And, um, people were very concerned about, the violence and, and trying to stem, um, drug use. And so, um, they were, they were really focused on young men and trying to, um, give them, uh, opportun- like pathways to become, uh, successful, um, citizens. So it, it involved things like job training. Um, so that was the initial plan and it was funded by the Kennedy administration, But what they found when they started opening up um, offices with social workers is that it really wasn't the the male teenage youth that was interested in their help. It was mothers, you know, poor mothers that were coming in because they couldn't get um, welfare benefits or. In their apartment, there was no heat and the landlord wouldn't fix it, or there was no running water, or there were rats uh, that were biting their children, right, and and spreading disease. So can, housing conditions were really bad. And uh, that was something that um, the mothers were really bringing to the attention of the social workers, uh, as well as the the arbitrary nature of, of the welfare administration's decision-making and, and just the fact that people were really struggling to provide for their families. Um, And so those experiences really radicalized the social workers and the administrators at Mobilization for Youth. Um, And they started working with residents um, and, and so it grew into the welfare rights movement and also the legal legal services movement. So they hired lawyers and um, began suing the city. So lawyers were working with these women and their families and filing class action lawsuits um, and, and having a lot of success, really. So they pioneered um, welfare law. And um, so so from this one organization came broad changes, really, um, in terms of how people thought about poor people and what they could achieve and how they should be treated.
1: Great. And you also talk about how Mobilization for Youth um, kind of catalyzed other organizations and initiatives. Can you talk a little bit about um the role that mobilization for youth played in the mid to late 1960s in New York?
0: Well, um, sure. I mean, I think so that, so it's important to say that, um, that mobilization for youth, um, was red baited. So, um, so, The thing is, uh, not everyone liked the fact that this organization that was federally funded and also funded by the city and state of New York and the Ford Foundation, that they were turning around and, for example, boycotting landlords that, you know, refused to make improvements in their building and suing landlords and suing the city. So... um, So some, uh, for example, um, state legislatures, legislators got very angry and um, they accused mobilization for youth of being um, being infiltrated by communists, being um, a red organization. Um, And, you know, in fact, there were member former members of the Communist Party on the staff, which is not surprising, given that. New York City had the largest um, population of, of communists. It wasn't illegal, right, to to be a member of the Communist Party um, prior to World War II. And, um, and, and these were left-leaning, radical social workers. They were not, like, disloyal and they were not, you know, aiding the Soviet Union at all. So those claims were false. Um, but nonetheless, it, it uh, led to the organization being defunded by the late 60s. Um, however, the people that trained at mobilization for youth um, spread out across New York City, um, really and across the nation, and they started other organizations and they used their ties, they they networked Um, in order to get war on poverty funding for the other organizations. So even though um, Mobilization for Youth, except for the Legal Services Division, which still continues to operate and is very important, even though the rest of Mobilization for Youth um, was uh, basically um, withered away um, within a few years in, in the early 70s, the influence of mobilization for youth um, persisted both in New York and across the country um, through the War on Poverty legislation, um, which adopted many of the ideas that mobilization for youth piloted, and then through the people that were trained at mobilization for youth. Um, and a lot of them actually went on to become faculty members at school. At schools of social work, and train other students too. So there's also that, um, you know, transfer of knowledge across generations that happened that way.
1: Terrific. Um, and and is there anything else that we should know about mobilization for youth and about the 1960s before we uh, look at the National Congress of Neighborhood Women? Well, I guess I
0: should have, uh, what, one thing I should have said is that, um, the other thing that was so, so important was that the civil rights movement was happening in, in the 1960s. And that inspired both the residents of the Lower East Side and the social workers. So, for example, they took, um, several trains to the March on Washington. And when they came back from that, um, the residents of the lower east side were um much more emboldened for example to protest um the a school superintendent that was being very condescending um to to mother primarily to a group of mothers that were puerto rican and you know saying things to them like well you won't understand me anyway cuz you only understand spanish and you know, blaming the mothers for their children not learning when they were saying, Hey, our, our children aren't being given books. They don't have homework. You know, what's going on? And the mothers were trying to become more involved in the schools and, and the schools were not open to that. Um, and so, um, this group, Mobilization for Mothers, you know, they, um, they were they, they reflect the the broader change that took place. Um, and and that also spread to other groups across New York City because people in general were inspired by. Martin Luther King Jr. and by core, but, you know, by the student protests, by everything that was happening across the nation in terms of the civil rights movement. And so um, that was radicalizing um, as well as their experiences with the city bureaucracies and with landlords.
1: Great. Thank you for that. Um, So you then turned to across um, across the way in Brooklyn in the late 1960s and early 1970s to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Can you tell us a little bit about the neighborhood organizing happening there and the National Congress of Neighborhood Women?
0: Yeah. So. So Jan Peterson, um, when she left mobilization for youth, she went to Williamsburg and it was a very different neighborhood than it is now. Um, now it is uh, very gentrified, but at that time it was very much a, a working class, largely Italian-American neighborhood, also some Polish residents, um, some uh, a large Orthodox Jewish population, Um, this was North Williamsburg. Um, so on the border with Greenpoint and, um, it was, you know, people worked at the Brooklyn Navy yard, which then was closed, um, by Robert McNamara. So there was a lot of, uh, loss of, uh, industrial jobs. Um, it was, you know, historically it was a waterfront, um, industrial and, and manufacturing and, um, area and, and a lot of those jobs were going away. And so men were losing their jobs and women who had traditionally not worked outside the home in that neighborhood were, were needing to, um, in order to make up for their husband's lost income or because their husband's pay wasn't enough anymore. Um, so these were, Women, so so Jan started working and, and Jan was very interesting because she was part of the civil rights movement. She was part of Harlem Corps while she was a social worker at Mobilization for Youth, but she was also part of New York Radical Feminists. So she was going to women's consciousness raising groups um, and she was also interested in in white ethnics and class so she um she was connected to all these diverse social movements um, because she's so passionate about social change and social justice, uh, and she was willing to take ideas and borrow from them all and so she started working with a group of um, italian American women, and they hadn't had the opportunity to go to college. Most of them hadn't graduated high school even because the attitude was, why do you need an education? You're just going to stay home and be a mom. And um, so so they just um, they they hadn't had those opportunities. And Jan um, basically was doing, you know, some consciousness raising with them um, and and trying to work to empower them through education. So like the first thing she did with her war on poverty grant was help them um, do learn to drive because none of them had driver's licenses. Um, and then she took them to Washington, D.C. Um, with money from um, the Center for Urban Ethnic Affairs. So that was part of the progressive strain of the white ethnic movement that was trying to, you um, combat the deterioration of of working class neighborhoods in in the nation's big cities um, and and try to help people work together um, to to restore communities and so um, so they met up with with feminist nuns there and actually women traveled from across the country to come to this first meeting of working class feminists and uh, so That is an amazing, uh, there's footage of of that consciousness-raising session, film footage, which is available, you can stream it from the Sophia Smith archives at Smith College. And it's really powerful um, testimony, women talking about the challenges they face in their lives because they're women. And they also talk, it's a diverse group of women. So they talk about their racial and ethnic backgrounds and the challenges that um, those um, have brought in their lives as well as um, what it means to be poor or working class. So, um, so that, that group, when Jan brought them back to Brooklyn, that's when um, they, they together, they founded the National Congress of Neighborhood Women. And it was always based in Brooklyn, but they had chapters throughout the country And I didn't um, study the other chapters. I only focus really on the New York chapters. Um, But there are materials at Smith about the other chapters, and that would be a great research project um, for someone to to pick up on. Um, But so anyway, one of the, the first things that they did was create a college program um, in, in Williamsburg that was, that was aimed at women, although they did ad- admit men as well, but it was mostly women and that was who it was aimed at. Um, women that, you know, hadn't had a chance to go to college. It was tuition free and the classes were taught in the neighborhood, um, to make it accessible. And um, that was a really wonderful thing. They taught the, the the students participated in designing the curriculum and choosing the faculty, many of whom are were leading feminist scholars from um, across New York City who were interested in what Jan was doing, and so they taught um, classes in in women's health and women's studies, and in history of family and history of immigration and in urban sociology and, um, and community organizing. So the students were getting this really cutting edge curriculum. um, And, and that was one of the ways that they learned to come together in the neighborhood, which had been very divided between the working class white ethnic population. And then there was a a large um, public housing project in the neighborhood as well, that was primarily African American and um, Latinas, and and there had been a long history of of racial violence um, from the white working class residents against the people of color in in the public housing project and the um, women leadership of the the tenants association there. Wanted to, to be part of the National Congress of Neighborhood Women so that they could access, um, the college program and then the jobs program that they were able to start with CETA funding, Comprehensive Employment Training Act funding. Um, they put, uh, hundreds of women in jobs at feminist nonprofits across, across New York. Um, so they really funded the whole women's movement. They were able to staff it, um, by winning these grants, um, that, that Jan was really good at getting because she had so many contacts from, um, her participation in all these diverse networks.
1: Terrific. And what um, you talk some about kind of the significance of knowing that this was going on in the 1970s. What do you see as the significance of this organizing um, through the National Congress of Neighborhood Women for understanding women's activism in the 70s?
0: Well, I think it's important because um, there's been... Uh, a critique of feminism that that says that it it was only, you know, an upper middle class white thing. And that is just historically inaccurate. And and looking at the National Congress for Neighborhood Women shows how broad and how diverse a group of women, you know, supported feminism and were involved in it. And actually the NCNW established the first publicly funded battered women's shelter in, in New York city, working together with the YWCA, they created the women's survival space. Um, and that was important to women that were, um, that had nowhere else to go that were trying to flee, um, situations of domestic violence, um, and those women came from all different backgrounds. Yeah, their, their domestic violence affects you know upper middle class white women, but it also affects affects poor women, African American women, Latina women, and so um, those women fought to establish the shelter, and that grew out of um, consciousness raising that was associated with their college curriculum and with taking classes. And then meeting together as a group, because um, they had support groups to help the women get through and earn their associate's degree and and they started talking and sharing about the the violence they were facing, and then they decided to take action and establish a shelter and then some of them were the first staff at the shelter so um I think it's important to to look at at what was actually happening um in the women's movement and and because that's a legacy for all women today uh, not just women but really for all of us to see that um some of the most important gains that were achieved by second wave feminism were not made only you know by educated white women but that they were made by really diverse groups of women working together for for common goals
1: Great. And you also kind of examine how um, different women coming together wasn't without conflict. They had to deal with issues of race. Um, There were internal conflicts about leadership and efforts to build partnerships across lines of difference with other organizations and initiatives. Can you talk a little bit about how um, they dealt with those issues and kind of figured out how to how to deal with them?
0: Yeah, so they um, I, and, and this took time, um, but over time they developed a form of structured consciousness raising um, in their leadership support training program um, and actually they've made it available um, online so you can still go to their to their website um, the National Congress for Neighborhood Women, which is, it, it's part of a international group now called Group, Groups International. Um, and you, and you can read the details of it, but, but basically they had, um, two kinds of, of small group support groups. And in one, they were allies panels and one were what we could call identity panels or groups. So for example, um, black women would meet in a group with each other in, in the identity group panel. And then in the allies panel, um, black and white and Latina women would all meet together. Right. And the same thing for class. So the professional women, cause there, there were a lot of, um, educated, you know, lawyers and professors and, and other, um, professional women that helped the group and that were necessary for them to get grants and administer the grants and, you know, um, that had vision that, that could really help the women achieve their goals. And they, they couldn't have achieved what they did without the professional women but they also didn't want the professional women to dominate the group and and um you know oppress the working class women in it right they did that that was the whole point was to empower the working class women and to help white uh white ethnic women and african American women form a coalition and and latina women and, and function together so the professional women would meet in their own group as an identity group and then also be in an allies panel. And in the allies panel, you know, the women would listen to each other and gain a better understanding of what each person's experiences and issues were. And that was really, both of those uh, groups were necessary because women needed to have what we might call today a safe space where they were around, um women that had similar experiences to them. And then they needed to be challenged in the allies panel to gain greater knowledge and empathy um, of women whose experiences were different from them. Um, And that over time, that was a lengthy process, but it led many of the women in the group um, who, who, you know, did come from different racial and ethnic backgrounds to form really strong friendships. Um, Some of them, Moved in together, lived together um you know they helped raise each other's children um so they they got past their initial um fear and and racism you know which had been ingrained in in many of the white ethnic women
1: interesting so what um would you say that this kind of method that they figured out for building that kind of solidarity? um, spread to other places? Was that part of the legacy of the organization or are there other legacies that we should know about?
0: I do think that, um, so they ran, um, leadership training institutes and, and, um, community organizers from all over the country came to those. So yes, they, the, they have trained others, although actually, um, I think that this is a methodology that would be really relevant to, for example, the organizers of the, the Women's March um, this past weekend in, in Washington, D.C. If you were following the news cover, coverage of it, there was a lot um, of discussion of identity politics and whether white women would recognize the, the need to take action, for example, on issues like police brutality um which affects primarily communities of color. Um, and so I think that that those discussions, um, I, I think, you know, if that is going to um if the women's march is going to translate into a successful social movement, that adopting that kind of methodology that the NCNW used to help diverse groups of women um, identify mutual needs and become better allies, to understand how to support each other uh, without talking over each other, without um, professional women just imposing their ideas on um, less educated women. I think that would be really important um, for organizers going forward.
1: Interesting point. And it seems like, you know, so much of what you talk about in this book is really relevant for our current political moment. Um, And in particular, why don't we turn now to your discussion of the 1980s and 1990s and ACT UP and WHAM, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And um, can you fill us in on WHAM? I realize I'm forgetting the acronym right now.
0: No problem. Yeah. Women's Health Action and mobilization, WHAM. Great. Yeah. So,
1: so yeah. So you talk about ACT UP and WHAM, um, the Church Ladies for Choice, and the ways that these groups worked together in the eighties and nineties. Um, could you tell us more about those groups and what you found when you looked into that time period?
0: Sure, sure. Well, um, so, so first of all, I should say that um, that the. The 80s and 90s were really different because um, the federal government um, discontinued maximum feasible participation and they discontinued the funding that had um, made mobilization for youth and the National Congress of Neighborhood Women possible. So the NCNW continued, but they needed to find um Private funding, foundation funding, and there were a lot of, uh, rules attached to it. Um, and it, it, it was much less oriented towards, um, involving poor residents in decision making and more about providing services. And, um, it, 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 uh, it weakened. I think it's fair to say that the, the, it weakened and and it, it led um, the organization to turn towards the international women's movement and and they lost some of the programs that they had built in New York City, including including the college program, which was a real loss and and is really sad. So so the eighties when the Reagan administration came in and and implemented massive budget cuts to um Social welfare programs um, that was that represented a really different um, opportunity structure we could say um, and so instead of social movements working with the state and relying on the state, instead we see social movements uh, um, opposed to the state um, and that that kind of Oppositional um, stance and um, not taking any federal funding um, were both really important to the AIDS coalition to unleash power to Act Up New York and to to wham women's health action mobilization. So so basically, Act Up um was founded um uh by a group of mostly gay men. Although feminists, um, and people, uh, it was, you know, a lot of, uh, white gay men in New York city that formed ACT UP, but, uh, both, uh, people of color and, um, feminist women, um, lesbians and straight feminist women were really important to the group. And I can talk more about that in a, in a moment, but basically, um, New York City was ground zero for the AIDS epidemic. Um it had, you know, very high death rates. Um and the city did not was not mounting um an adequate response. The the city hospitals were overwhelmed. There wasn't enough service provision and um so uh gay men We're saying what our our community is being decimated, you know, and we need to do something. And they were frustrated both at the local government and by the Reagan administration as well, um, because Reagan uh, hadn't said the word AIDS. He hadn't acknowledged that this epidemic was happening and they felt that he should be prioritizing it and making sure that there was federal funding available for research, for treatment, that they should be speeding up because there really was no effective treatment at this point um, for AIDS. And people were dying uh, y- very young and in a lot of pain. Um, and, and it was really, it, it, people felt really desperate. And so uh, the playwright, Larry Kramer, gave an gave a impassioned talk and he said, you know, we're if if we don't do something, we're all going to die and you know, this is it. And so, um they formed it as a direct action group so that they could do things like civil disobedience um in order to draw media attention to the issue of AIDS and to put pressure on decision makers, people in leadership positions, both in private industry, for example, at pharmaceutical companies, um, at the FDA, you know, in City Hall, in in Congress, um, in the White House. So they didn't want to provide services because they didn't want to take federal funding, um, because they wanted to be able to to break the law by committing civil disobedience um, and and to really, you know, be uh, as outrageous in their um, opposition as possible in order to get the most attention. So, you know, it was very strategic. When I say outrageous, I don't mean they were being outrageous just to be outrageous. But for example, they shut down trading on Wall Street um, and disrupted trading in order to draw attention to price gouging uh, when the first AIDS drugs did come out. Um, and they would, you know, shut down Grand Central Station in New York and disrupt, um, commute in order to draw attention to AIDS. Um, so they were, they were really committed to, um, using dramatic street theater and, and to using really good graphics. They also wheat pasted posters. You know, their most famous one is Silence Equals Death, which, um, uh, the, the art collective Grand Fury designed, um, they were, uh, part of ACT UP and activists would, would paste thousands of those posters around New York city in a weekend, um, again, to draw people's attention to AIDS and, and to call for funding and for changing policies, um, to get better treatment, um, so I guess the other thing I should say and, and this brings in wham, is that um locally um Cardinal John O'Connor, who is uh a very conservative and outspoken um cardinal, he really was the Vatican's representative um in the US at this time. He spoke for the Vatican, he was very influential nationally, internationally, and he controlled a lot in New York City, um, in part because the church uh, was providing a lot of health care. Um, they, they then and now continue to run a lot of um, health care facilities. And the thing is, they wouldn't allow for discussion of condoms or safer sex practices. And so... Uh, and they also didn't allow for discussion of abortion or birth control. So not even administering those things, but, you know, allowing for discussion of them and they were blocking safer sex curriculum from the public schools, um, and, uh, saying a lot of homophobic things, Cardinal O'Connor, uh, and, and other members of the church hierarchy in New York city, were publicly making homophobic statements about AIDS that was really inciting violence against um, gay men. And they also made very public um, proclamations against abortion, against abortion providers. And they were encouraging of groups like Operation Rescue, which were very radical in in the 80s and 90s in terms of um, anti-abortion activists chaining themselves to the doors of women's health clinics and preventing women from getting inside. Um, So so basically, um, feminist reproductive rights activists um, and gay men AIDS activists were brought together um, to combat the, the church. And the public funding that the church was getting so they, for example, they the city of New York funded them to open the first comprehensive AIDS care clinic. And they said, this is wrong. Why should this homophobic this organization that is being led by you know openly homophobic um leaders, men, why should they be receiving public funding to run an AIDS clinic? Like it just doesn't make sense. Um and and so Many of ACT UP and WAM's joint actions were directed at Cardinal O'Connor and, and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church um, in New York City to say they shouldn't be receiving public funding. And if they do, then they need to change their policies um, because they're having real consequences uh, when people can't get information about or access to um, birth control and safer sex, for example
1: wonderful and um and and you kind of in the course of talking about their dramatic actions and the coalitions that they were forming um, there's sort of an interesting parallel with the National Congress of neighborhood women in terms of the internal dynamics. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the majority action committee and the women's caucus within ACT UP and how those interacted with um, the kind of actions that you've been telling us about?
0: Yeah, so um, so one of the things about ACT UP that was important was that, it. so it was a, a very large group, like thousands of people came to ACT UP's weekly meetings and, you know, some of their largest demonstrations had um, in New York had like 5,000 participants. So it was um, a much larger group than the NCNW, for example. Um, but they had affinity groups, which were small groups of people that were. Um, were trained in civil disobedience to support each other, and that would generate ideas. And, and it wasn't just civil disobedience. They had groups that were doing um, research on, on drug treatments, for example, or research on um, how to change the CDC's definition of AIDS um, so that it included opportunistic infections that women and poor people were getting that gay men were not getting. Um, because the CDC uh, hadn't recognized that. And that meant that women with AIDS, for example, didn't qualify for disability insurance. And, and that was, um, so that was something that the ACT UP Women's Caucus worked on. So, so ACT UP had many smaller groups within it, including the Women's Caucus um, and the Majority Action Committee, which was made up of people of color who were the majority of people with AIDS, um, then and, and now in this country and, and worldwide as well. And so they were trying to support each other and to draw attention to the racial and because race and class align so closely in this country, you know, to the class, um, issues that people of color were struggling with, um, compounding the, the, the epidemic. So they were really looking at the social um, context of the epidemic, not just the science, right? But the fact that, for example, homeless people with AIDS were dying really young because they were getting so many opportunistic infections. They didn't have access to regular health care, Um, And New York City had a huge homeless population, which was only recently surpassed, I'm sad to say, in 2016. Um, But 1989 was the, the, you know, peak of New York's homeless population. And tens of thousands of people were were homeless and sleeping on the streets. Um, And many of them had HIV or AIDS. And so the Majority Action Committee Staged a lot of demonstrations, including ones at Trump Tower, drawing attention to the fact that the city was giving all these tax breaks to developers like Trump to um, to build luxury housing, and yet they weren't doing anything. And in fact, they were tearing down SROs, um, single residency occupancy. So these. Um, basically housing for poor people was being torn down and uh, replaced with luxury housing, with um, with funding um, from the city of New York to private real estate developers. So the majority action committee was trying to make people aware of what was happening and to get the city to allocate funding for, to build shelter for homeless people with AIDS, to build appropriate long-term housing. And they actually wound up um, spinning off and creating a nonprofit called Housing Works, which is still in operation in New York City today and which has, a, has built housing. Um, and they, they decided that they had to become service providers, that the need was so great um, that they couldn't only be an oppositional group. Uh, and so there was tension within ACT UP over that because um, not everybody in, in ACT UP, you know, wanted to go that route. Um, but they split off amicably um, and, and said, listen, our, you know, we identify with the community of people of color who have AIDS and their needs are too great for us to not become involved in service provision.
1: Interesting. And so I think with all of those threads that you talk about, there's so many sort of ripples from activism in the 80s and 90s. And we haven't talked in detail about Church Ladies for Choice, but can you kind of fold them in and telling us about legacies of ACT UP, WHAM, Church Ladies for Choice, the activism of the 80s and 90s? What, um, what were some of those ripple effects?
0: Yeah. So the Church Ladies for Choice, um, th- what they uh, so they were part of um, the members of Church Ladies for Choice were part of ACT UP and their founder, Elizabeth Mikesell, um founded WAM, Women's Health Action Mobilization. She was a co-founder um, and WAM was founded in response to the Webster Supreme Court decision and really to um, a string of um, of restrictions being placed on uh, women's right to abortion and access to abortion, as well as um, the resurgence in anti-abortion activism um, by groups like Operation Rescue. So WAM was responding both to the Supreme Court uh, um, allowing, uh, greater restrictions, things like waiting periods, um, you know, ma- states making it mandatory, for example, that women, uh, look at ultrasounds or, you know, there's a whole bunch of restrictions that have been placed. Um, and, and the Supreme court was under Casey, largely upholding those restrictions. So, So they were mobilizing against that on the one hand. And then also, though, and importantly, um, they wanted to help women get into women's health clinics. So they organized um, escort services so that uh, when Operation Rescue uh, or the other um, groups, many of which, for example, um, were led by um, Catholic priests and they would come and, and do um you know pray in front of abortion clinics and and um not physically obstruct women the same way that Operation Rescue would but you know um nonetheless it was intimidating to to patients who are trying to get in to have a large group of people on the sidewalk in front of the clinic this is also when um you know there were there were several um Abortion doctors killed and abortion clinics were being firebombed um, until the Clinton administration came in and Janet Reno stationed federal marshals at abortion clinics and um, and stopped the violence, uh, at least for the for a period of time. She was successful in stopping it. So um, so WAM members were trying to keep clinics open and try to help women feel safe and get in because if your blood pressure goes up too high you you can't have a medical procedure, whether it's an abortion or you know any of the many other women's health services that Planned Parenthood for example, provides and so um, so this was like these were really tense standoffs um, between you know reproductive rights activists and anti-abortion activists. It was pretty unpleasant. The anti-abortion activists would like hold up signs with bloody fetuses on them and they would shout baby killer and try to shame the women that were going in. And so Elizabeth had this great idea um, and and she was inspired by uh, others. um, But she decided, why don't we form the Church Ladies for Choice? Um, and use satire as a as a means of responding to this uh, very tense situation outside women 's health clinics and so um she she brought her old old bridesmaids dresses to her her gay male friends from act up and they loved the idea and and so the church ladies for choice were born, and they would dress up in drag and um, sing songs about reproductive rights. So, for example, they they rewrote Woody Guthrie's um, famous, you know, most famous song, This Land is Our Land. They would rewrite it to This Womb is My Womb, etc. And um, they put together a church ladies' songbook, and they would sing, you know, outside clinics. And that really helped... Boost the spirits of of the women that were volunteering to escort patients in. It boosted the spirits of patients. It, it made them laugh. And it helped diffuse the tension and, and make them feel safer and make them feel affirmed. And that was really important, you know, um, on a personal level. And then they would also, you know, participate in marches and have fundraisers and so um so the church ladies for choice um they they are they're still performing um even though they're getting older and um their founder had to had to move outside of new york city recently um uh and and but she is continuing to organize in her retirement community in arizona and uh So, you know, I think maybe that's one of the legacies um, to answer the other part of your question, is that people that participated in these social movements, even when that movement um, went into abeyance, uh, as historians like to say, uh, when that movement ends, because pretty much all social movements ebb and flow, right? So it's normal for them to, to end, uh, but they have moved on to, to be actively engaged in other fights for social justice in New York city and in many communities, um, across the nation. And, uh, I'm in touch with some of them that I've interviewed over email and you know many of them for example are mobilizing um today again um in response to um some of the the policies that the Trump administration has announced it will be implementing uh, around immigration um around reproductive rights um in, in particular those issues
1: Great. And I think that's a great transition. Um, Before we talk about your um, current exhibit that examines some of these issues, what do you see as the significance of your book for this political moment? What can we learn or what frameworks does the research that you did um, kind of ask us to use to understand what's happening now?
0: Um, So that's a really good question
1: and a a hard question.
0: you know, I, I guess at the, at its broadest level, at the most, you know, general, I would say that people really can make a difference and, and that, you know, that so they can achieve social change and social justice by working together in coalitions. Um, and that they will, it, you know, also that that will um, make a great deal of difference in their own lives. Um, so I would encourage people to to form communities, you know, like that having those um, diverse interactions and friendships is really sustaining and that, um, that people will make more effective movements for social change if they incorporate um, diverse perspectives. And that can only happen from building face to face relationships with people that are different than you um, and and that, that that is really important um, and that means sometimes you don't agree on everything and that's okay um, you It's not in my opinion it's not a good idea to have a litmus test. Um, you know you, you can choose which act, which issues you do agree on and work together to change those um and i think that is going to be really important for activists um moving forward to to do that to figure out where do we agree how can we support each other um and to focus on that
1: great and i think your book um just just looking at the ways these groups fed into each other influence each other the mechanisms that they use to achieve what they achieved is highly um connect we can learn a lot from looking at those movements of the past and you've actually given us another opportunity to learn about movements and activism of the past and your current exhibit that is up can you tell us a little bit about the exhibit and how it relates to your book
0: yeah i'd love to so um so when i was finishing the book in 2014 I contacted Meg Handler, who's a wonderful photographer and a photo editor, because I wanted to include some photographs um, she had taken of ACT UP demonstrations, um, and specifically the ashes action where... Um, people brought the ashes of their loved ones that had died of AIDS to Washington, D.C., and threw them on the lawn of the White House. And the photographs are uh, incredibly powerful. And so I wrote to Meg to ask her if I could license them to to include in my book. And she said yes, and she put me in touch with other photographers because she was editor of the Village Voice um, in the '90s, and she knew a lot of um, of photographers that were progressive, that were, you know, that were working in the social documentary tradition of using um, their photographs to show the need for social change. So, um, I, because I, I explained the book to her, and so she put me in touch with other photographers, so I could include some of their work in my book. But we also just um, struck up a correspondence and she said, you know, Tamar, this would make a great exhibit. And um, she knew Michael Camber, who is the founder of the Bronx Documentary Center. And that is um, a a gallery um, that is in the South Bronx. It's dedicated to the social documentary tradition. And it's dedicated to educating and empowering residents of the South Bronx. So uh, so I thought, great, you know, and so Meg and I pitched our idea to Mike. We we love the idea that, you know, kids from the South Bronx would come on school field trips and and see the exhibit, that it would have a much more diverse um, Audience, there than it would um, if we tried to put it in a you know a gallery in downtown um, Manhattan, a commercial gallery or something. So Mike Mike really liked the idea, but he encouraged us to broaden um, beyond the framework I had used in my book of progressive movements for social change. And so we we looked instead um, we collected the work of uh, thirty eight. Um, photojournalists who were working in New York City in the 80s and 90s, and we just um, looked at everything they sent us related to um, activism, to demonstrations, but also to riots, to, to moments of spontaneous violence, like the Crown Heights race riots, um we so so it was really a challenge for me as a historian i got to learn a lot more actually about new york city in the 80s and 90s um one of the the saddest moments for me in putting the show together was researching all of the um it was predominantly young men of color that were killed by police in the 80s and 90s and it, there's a very long list And I did that. I I researched it because the photographers were sending us so many pictures of uh, protests of police brutality. So so the exhibit is called Whose Streets Are Streets, New York City, 1980 to 2000. And it's um, on view at the Bronx Documentary Center through March 5th, 2017. But it's also online at Who's Streets dot photo? So W H O S E S T R E E T S dot photo. And there's uh, more than 150 photographs there, and uh, they range from anti war demonstrations to um, Tompkins Square Park riots over, you know housing and homelessness and gentrification. There's um, a, a lot about queer activism and reproductive rights and AIDS activism and the culture wars of the 80s and 90s um, and, and a very um, important set of images about race relations in New York City and white counter-protests to civil rights marches. Um, So I really hope people will go online to whostreets.photo and check out those those, um, powerful images, because many of those issues are, are still relevant today. And we can learn a lot from how activists were framing them and Uh, the ways they were creating spectacles for the media to photograph to get their messages out. Um, I'll just, uh, sorry, I know this is a long answer, but the, uh, for example, drawing attention to environmental racism, there's some very important photographs documenting, for example, the Toxic Avengers um, that staged a demo at the New York City Marathon so that when the runners hit Brooklyn, all of a sudden they were, they were burning um, smoke and there's all these activists wearing masks and, you know, it really scared the runners, but it also, it was a protest about citing more and more toxic waste incinerators in poor neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the Bronx and saying, you know, we are already suffering from really high rates of asthma and other pollution related illnesses. And we do not want any more toxic waste um, processing facilities in our neighborhood. Um, and, and so I, I hope people will, will check it out. And, you know, activists today might learn something from the strategies um, that they can see displayed in the photographs.
1: Terrific. Thanks so much. Well, we have taken up a lot of your time. Can you just um, tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yeah. So I'm actually co-editing a book with two of my colleagues here at RIT um, with Christine Cray and Hinda Mandel. And it's an interdisciplinary book. And the title is, the working title is Nasty Women and Bad Hombres, historical reflections on the 2016 presidential election.
1: Terrific. Well, that sounds highly relevant. Well, (laughs) thank you so, so much for talking with us today. I really appreciated hearing about the book and the exhibit, and I know our listeners will too. So um, take care.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Tamar, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for discussing your book with us today, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in History. This is your host, Isabel Moore.